Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're going to get into politics a little bit because we are is coming up on midterm election season. And now, for most people, midterm elections aren't that big of a deal, but I definitely think we're at a point in our country where every election has become a pretty big deal. So my goal today is to encourage us to vote, to convince others people to vote, but not to go to such extreme where we put all of our hopes in the political situation, because the reality is politics is really only one ingredient out of many ingredients that are necessary for the church to be engaged in. And part of the problem here is that many Christians are really confused about, you know, what is it that I need to be doing? Right? What is it that I need to do? What's the real answer? And then you're going to have some people saying it's all about politics, and you're going to have some people saying it's all about prayer. Some people are going to say, you know, we can't do anything. It's all up to God's sovereignty. And there's all these different answers. And my hope is we want to have the right understanding of where everything fits in, where everything fits in. Because the truth is, political activism is important. It is important. And I run into Christians all the time who basically say, you know, things like, you know, we as Christians should not be mixing religion and politics. We should not be involved in politics at all. And I understand where they're coming from to some degree, because what they're pointing out is that there is a real danger of corrupting our religion when we are really into politics, right? And for example, guys like Michael Brown, have been warning. I think he just wrote a book recently about how, you know, evangelicalism, many evangelicals have sold their soul, right, for politics or for Trump. And, um, you know, I understand where he's coming from, okay? I understand this fear, all right? And I understand this danger. It's a real danger. We saw this, for example, um, with regards to things like Prop 8, which was the ballot, like, in California that was trying to codify traditional marriage. Because what happened was a lot of Christians saw that the gay lobby, that the LGBT movement was making incredible headway. And what they wanted to try and do was cut that off. Before it gained too much influence in the state, they wanted to have laws that were implemented that was basically defining marriage as between a man and a woman. And I totally understood this. I think this was a a great thing overall. Okay, but if you know the history of what happened there, you know there was a judge in California that basically just overturned it, and um, and then obviously the Supreme Court made a ruling that made gay marriage the law of the land, and you know this was really disheartening I think for a lot of Christians and for a lot of people because that was a hard fought battle. There was a lot of work that went into convincing people, and just think about it that we had a state as liberal as California vote. For traditional marriage on a state level, that's incredible, right? That's some incredible work that was overturned by a handful of judges. And to be clear, that was really problematic. That is is such a breach of, you know, it's such a violation what those judges did. Because the whole point of the, the judiciary is that the judiciary has the responsibility to uphold the system of government that we currently have. That's its job, Right, so when judges are essentially legislating themselves, right, they're the ones who are making the laws, um, and they're taking the place of the legislative legislative branch of government. 
that is such a violation because their entire job is to make sure that each branch is playing its part and not violating the Constitution, right? So I have a huge problem with, with judges when they do this. But in this case, it was so demoralizing for many Christians because we're like, man, we put in all this work, we did all this activism, we even won the battle, and still we lost. Like, what's the point of this, right? And I think many Christians got disillusioned with that, with the religious right, which was a movement, you know, really back in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, especially with Reagan, you know, Reagan really got the the Christians, the evangelicals, to say, hey, we need to vote in line with our values. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people that were kind of embittered from this whole era of, of American history where it seemed like all these Christians decided to become activists and they were really pushing against where the culture was headed. And so now many people today, they look back on that like, dude, that was so wrong. It poisoned many people against the gospel, right? It mixed religion and politics. Um, I do not feel the same way. Like, when Christians are fighting for righteous laws, that is a good thing. When Christians are fighting for righteous laws, that is a good thing. Now, it doesn't mean that we're always going to win. We are going to lose sometimes, and that's okay, right? That's okay if we lose sometimes, and we should not be discouraged. And I think the danger there is when we put all of our hope in activism, when we say, man, we've got to do this, we've got to save the nation by codifying traditional marriage, I think we're making a mistake when we put all of our hope in that, okay? Because the truth is we are going to lose many of those battles, all right? You know, the way that guys like Ben Shapiro say it is that culture, or excuse me, politics flows downstream from culture, meaning that you can't hope to shift the heart of the nation through legislating your morality, right? You can't do that because politics flows downstream, and that's exactly what we saw with gay marriage. What we saw is that leaders in the church were fighting for traditional marriage laws, but in the meantime, the left was basically discipling the entire younger generation on love is love, right? The the pro-gay message, and this was coming through the schools, this was coming through entertainment, TV shows, movies, video game, music, all the all the things that influence young people. And um, you know, I saw this in real time, right? I saw this in real time as a young adult myself when I was in college and in high school, and I was saying, we're gonna lose this battle. Because I saw what was happening. You know, if you were a young person, you were being barraged nonstop by this pro-gay message in this case. And the church wasn't wasn't addressing that issue effectively at all for young people. And what I saw is that this entire generation of young people were really being discipled on this issue um, by the political left and not by the church. And um, this really gets to the heart of the matter because what happens, the church seemed to me, from my perspective, to go to from one extreme to another, where we went, hey, it's all about politics, and then in that case, when it didn't work, so many people were disillusioned, and they're like, politics does nothing. <laughs> and I'm going to make the argument, I think both of those extremes are problematic, okay? And guys like Michael Brown, who I deeply admire, I think Michael Brown is an amazing voice, if you're not familiar with him, he is a, you know, a messianic Jewish apologist, he's a radio show, show host, he hosts a program called The Line of Fire, he's very outspoken on some political issues where they intersect with faith, I really respect him. 
And he has been, you know, arguing lately against this kind of allegiance to Trump. Okay. Now, I have had some disagreements as I've read some of his stuff, but at the same time, I need to acknowledge that I have been living in very liberal areas, right? I'm, I've, I've been living in California. I've been living in Colorado. These are pretty liberal areas. I'm sure Michael Brown has been dealing with a lot of regions or callers and listeners from a lot of regions where there has been an incredible allegiance to Trump that has superseded their allegiance to Christ in some ways, or at least they've done it in some unwise ways, had this allegiance to Trump. I haven't seen it so much in places like California and Colorado, although I'm sure, I know for sure that type of thing exists. So I do want to say I recognize that danger, yet at the same time, more of what I see in my more liberal Christian circles, right, is not this crazy allegiance to Trump, but this saying, hey, we need to get out of politics. We need to stay out of it. The church and the, you know, and, and politics should be completely separate. And I just want to say both of these things are extremes. Both of these things are extremes. In my opinion, pastors, leaders in the church should be mobilizing their churches. They should be mobilizing their churches to vote right for righteous legislation. And I understand there's a debate on that. Obviously, I think in these midterm elections, I think that basically Christians should be voting straight-line Republican, <laughs> right? If you're confused at all, you know, in these types of elections, I would say just vote straight-line Republican. That's not an official endorsement for any Republican candidate because obviously I don't know all the Republican candidates out there. But what I will say is that the Democrat Party has become so extreme in our times that um, I don't think it's hard to discern on these issues. I really don't. And, um, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, if I say, hey, Back in the times of slavery, when we had slavery in America, I think pastors should have been telling their their congregants, hey, we need to go out and vote for the abolition of slavery. In those days, it was the Republican Party that was fighting for that. And I, I think most Christians would agree with that. <laughs> I think most Christians would be like, yeah. I think most Christians today would be angry at pastors who did not encourage their people to fight against slavery um, through political activism and otherwise, right? And yet, those same Christians are going to turn around today and say, Christians should stay out of politics. That, to me, there's, there's a clear disconnect there, all right? Now, I'm not trying to straw man the people that say that, because I do believe I understand where they're coming from. What they're basically saying is that the circumstances then are different from the circumstances today, meaning slavery was clearly so evil that Christians and Christian leaders should have been able to discern this is so evil that we've got to fight against it and we've got to encourage people to vote against it. All right. But they're going to argue that today the situation is not as clear. Right. I see a lot of this today. I would actually say that is far more clear today than it was over the issue of slavery. Okay. The truth is, is that there is a strong biblical argument for slavery. I understand that argument. Okay. Now, to be super clear, because I know people are immediately going to hear that and be like, oh, Dennis believes the Bible argues for slavery. I do not believe the Bible argues for slavery. Right? I don't think it does. All right? I think it was a move of God in the 19th century, but going back to the 18th century, to end slavery. God wanted to end slavery, and he was speaking to many Christians, and it really was a Christian-led movement that ended slavery in 
England, and then in America, and it was a hard-fought battle. So I believe that was a move of God. But what I'm saying is that I completely understand how many Christians read various scriptures and were like, hmm, it doesn't seem clear to me that God is against slavery. Because there are several passages in the Bible that talk explicitly about slavery and how you should do it, right? Meaning, I can understand why many Christians were like, hey, the Bible doesn't argue that we should abolish slavery. The Bible argues that we should practice righteous slavery, all right? And I would agree with that basic argument, okay? The idea there is that really biblical slavery was much better understood as, you know, indentured servitude. The way slavery worked in many cultures in the ancient world, and by the way, we should point out that slavery was, you know, pervasive in the ancient world. Okay, slavery was all over the ancient world. But the type that was to be practiced in places like Israel was really closer to what we would call today indentured servitude. Okay, so you would go into slavery to pay debts. All right. And the idea was that it was not a lifelong slavery per se, and it was not a slavery that would pass down to your children. Okay. And this was the type of slavery that we have in Israel in the Old Testament. All right. But the Bible even talks about if you were a slave in Rome. Okay. Which is that the, you have to fast forward there. If we're talking about Roman slavery in like the first century, which is this type of slavery that the New Testament is addressing. Okay. Well, it says a slave, right? should try and get their freedom. If they can get free, they should. But if they can't, it's okay. And if they can't get free, then they should serve their masters as those serving the Lord. Okay? And I understand why many Christians living in, you know, 19th century America would read those types of passages and be like, hey, look what the, what the, what the Bible, what the New Testament is saying here. The New Testament is saying that slaves should serve their masters unto the Lord, even if their masters are harsh, right? That's what Peter talks about in his epistles, right? Knowing that the Lord will reward them, okay? Meaning the, there's an argument here, Okay? to maintain slavery from a biblical standpoint, okay? Now, I already said, I don't think that's the best understanding of those passages, all right? The best understanding of those passages, in my opinion, is that in the Roman world, there wasn't an expectation that Christians would be able to end slavery, okay? That, like I said, it was a, it was a, it was a pervasive institution in the ancient world, and Roman slavery was terrible. I mean, you, you were basically property in every way, and there was abuse, and there was all sorts of terrible things going on, Okay? But the point of the scriptures in these cases was not to say that slavery is a good thing and should be supported. The point was to say that slavery is a reality in this life, okay? Just like many other evil things are a reality. And so how do we live righteously in a context of evil, in an evil and a dark and fallen world? Okay, that's really what the New Testament is addressing, okay? Now, the only reason I point that out is because it's easy for many people to look back and say, dude, it was so clear that slavery was evil, and today it's not so clear. And my entire point in talking about all of this is to say, no, it's far more clear today, okay? It is far more clear today from a biblical perspective, all right? I I harp on abortion because abortion is the clearest area, okay? Abortion is the clearest area. You cannot make an argument from Scripture today, in my opinion, a convincing or compelling argument that God endorses abortion up to birth, okay? That is the de facto position of the Democratic Party today, that abortion is permissible. You know, Gavin Newsom is running articles saying how the Bible supports abortion. Unbelievable, okay? Unbelievable. John MacArthur, pastor in California, publicly rebuked Gavin Newsom. Good for him. Good for him. Pastors should be publicly rebuking 
political leaders when they try and twist scripture like that and make those types of arguments. There is no good argument from scripture that God supports the aborting of a child until birth. And yet that is exactly what the Democratic Party is fighting for. I understand that there are more moderate Democrats out there who would say, hey, it's only permissible in the first trimester or maybe just for the first you know, month or whatever like that. But the, the, the reality is those people have no say in this, on this issue on a national level. They have no say, all right? In all the recent legislative attempts by Democrats, every single Democrat in Congress has voted to pass legislation that would legalize abortion until birth. It has become, it's the, the most radical position of all the developed countries, well, I don't want to say all the developed countries, of the vast majority of developed countries out there in the world today is the most radical position that the Democratic Party has taken, and they're united on this, all right? And that's just one issue. There's so many other issues. I harp on abortion because I think abortion should be the clearest issue that Christians are voting for, because we're not talking about abortion, we're talking about the murder of children. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about fetuses and abortion, we're using alternative language that is that is making it harder to understand what's actually going on. We're talking about the killing of young children. All right? And that this is something the church should be united on. We should be fighting tooth and nail to see our nation wake up on this issue. Now, of course, there's so many other issues that are at stake here. We're talking about the education of our children. There is a clear effort by the Democratic Party to take education away from parents and to have a state-sanctioned education that includes, right, the glorifying of the LGBT agenda, right, that includes affirming transgender identity regardless of what parents believe. In fact, to even go so far as to enable kids to take hormone blockers and things like that without parental consent. There's all of this stuff that's going on in our nation. It's a real battle. We're fighting for this thing. Again, this is just a small snippet, okay, of issues. We should all be fairly familiar with these issues, and Christians are called to fight we are called to fight. We are called to be truth and light, even though it might cost us in this life, even though it may be unpopular. That's how these things go. We have to be willing to be unpopular. Jesus became unpopular because of the things that he said. He didn't need to say those things, right? He didn't need to say the unpopular things. Jesus, of all people, knew what would make him unpopular, all right? He didn't need to say, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. He didn't need to say, right, you're forgiven of your sins, which offended all the Pharisees, right? He didn't need to say those types of things, but he did because he is not concerned with being popular and people receiving his message. He is concerned with living rightly before God, and he's justified, he's vindicated by the Lord in time. And this is the perspective that all Christians should have. It doesn't matter whether we accomplish everything that we want to accomplish in our day or in our age. That doesn't matter. Why? Because we have a sovereign king who rules over the nations. This is our faith. Our faith is that there is a ruler in heaven who rules over the nations of the earth. And though he permits evil to prevail for a short time, 
He allows it to test the faith of those who follow him. This is why he allows it. He allows evil to prevail for a time when nations choose to rebel against his commands. God will allow it for a short time, and then he will execute judgment. And when he executes judgment, he will vindicate the righteous ones who spoke truthfully, and he will reward them, and the truth and righteousness will prevail in the end. This is the hope that we have as believers. And on that hope, we cannot give into some type of fear that our positions might be unpopular. We may not win as many souls to Christ. I, I, I need to address this because this is one that is is I hear so many times in the body of Christ. And I hear it by well-meaning, otherwise mature leaders in the body of Christ who I respect and I love. Okay, But I hear this argument all the time that we need to use winsome language, that we need to, you know, only present, you know, the 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 parts of the Bible that are popular, right? That people can receive and accept. And I understand this, this whole idea of contextualizing the gospel. I would argue that that's not really what the Bible means by contextualization, by the way, okay? But I understand the heart of it. We want to make Jesus look as good as possible to the world so that they will receive him. And then when they start to follow him, then he will convict them of the parts that he needs to convict them of. And then they will come to faith you know, and, or excuse me, then they will practice righteousness and repent of their sin when they know him, but they've got to know him first. I understand that argument. I really do, all right? But what we're going to see again and again in the scriptures is that God calls his people to preach unpopular truths and to suffer for it and to be persecuted for it. And he, and he promises that he will reward them, that this is something that he greatly desires. And we see so many examples of this, like Jeremiah, like all the apostles, like John the Baptist, who was executed for the things that he said that were unpopular, okay? This is what is going on today. And we cannot live in fear that if we say certain parts of the scriptures that are unpopular, that we're going to, you know, cause disgrace to the name of Christ, Okay. No, we can't live with that kind of fear. It will not cause disgrace to Christ. In fact, it will be vindicated in time. It will be vindicated in time, all right? And that's what I truly believe. So when we're talking about voting for things that might be unpopular, I think it's worth it, okay? There are a lot of people today that, you know, hate on things, you know, they call it Christian nationalism, all right? That's the, that's the popular slur for, you know, the type of position that I'm advocating for, all right? Um, they, uh, this position will be vindicated in time, okay? It will be vindicated in time, and that is what we have to live for. So my encouragement to all believers who are listening is let's vote this November, okay? Let's vote, and let's get other people to vote if we can, all right? Let's convince our leaders, right? Let's talk to our pastors and say, hey, can we encourage everybody to get registered to vote, all right, it is irresponsible of us, all right, if we don't cast a vote because we're not registered. And I'll say that I've fallen into that myself before, <laughs> okay? All right, I understand because we can tend to have this focus like, no, it's all spiritual, I just got to pray and things like that. But I want to say, no, there is a need for us to practice righteousness when it comes to voting. That's one area. And I would encourage all believers to rally around this and try and do this without falling into the extreme of thinking that it's all about our vote. It's not all about our vote, okay? It's not all about uh, all about our vote. 
And I want to say this, I do have great hope. I do think, you know, it's been a while since we've talked about politics, so there's so many things that I feel like I haven't mentioned or talked about in quite a while. But I do want to say this, I do think our nation is turning right now, that it's been happening. I do think that 2020 was really the high watermark of the, the movement left in our nation. Okay, the movement towards socialism, towards wokeism. I think 2020 was the high watermark, and I think since then there has been a pretty clear pushback against that in the nation. I think the nation is moving farther to the right, and I think you could see that with a lot of people who were formerly would be considered on the left. There's a lot of them who now identify more with the right. And I'm talking about guys like maybe Joe Rogan, right, who is the most influential, popular, you know, podcast person in the world. Right, I'm talking about guys, you know, like um, Tulsi Gabbard. Excuse me, she's a girl, obviously. Right, Tulsi Gabbard, who you know is still on the left, but you can tell she's taken a much more forceful push against the extreme elements on the left, and she would really be considered somewhere in the middle right now. Like many people on the left would consider her right wing. Right, that's you know that's kind of your signifying. Like once you get called right wing, you know, by people on the left, you know, you could tell that means that you've you've pushed back against some of the more extreme elements on the left. Okay, um, but really, there's a lot of these people, right? There's a lot of these people that have started to push back. Elon Musk, right, has pushed back, and now he's probably more of a conservative now. Okay, um, but I see this. You know, we're just talking about some of these big names, but I see this all the time, right? I see this all the time online. I see people talk about how you know they used to be Democrats, um, but now they understand that there's been such an extreme with the woke stuff right? And they're pushing back against it. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I think we're pushing back towards the right. I continue to warn, you know, that there is a danger. Like, this is the problem. Like, when people don't have serious conviction of their own, then what happens is they become moved by the momentum, right? The winds of change. The winds of change is the way the scripture speaks about this. And the winds of change blow on people, and then they get moved by the currents, by the political, ideological currents that are happening in the world. And I want to warn about that, because in the same way, many people were pushed into this woke thing because of all the influence around them, right? Like, I, I think back to 2020, when you know, so many Christians were putting up the black square, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter, and they were supporting Black Lives Matter and the organization and the message, and they were, you know, marching in Black Lives Matter rallies, and they were doing that because of this incredible pressure that was coming from the left. And many of those same Christians leaders today would be like, you know, yeah, I, I, I probably wouldn't, have, I probably wouldn't do that today because, you know, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization, you know. This is stuff that people, you know, conservatives were saying back in 2020. But their voice was much diminished. And today, it's like, you know, we're here two years later, and it's like, okay, yeah, they're right on that, and it, and it's a lot better known now. But my point is, many people were pushed really far to the left, and many of those same people are now being pushed to the right. And you know, when the left makes the argument that Donald Trump is an existential threat to the nation. <laughs> I know what they're talking about. There is a, a, a real point, a valid point that they are making. Okay, now to be clear, I don't think it's a, exactly that. Okay, I don't think Trump is the demonic, you know, orange Hitler that many people claim that he is, right? Obviously, because I, 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 I advocate voting for him, right? And I'll probably vote for him again if he runs, right? Um, although I am thinking of DeSantis also. He looks like a great candidate too. Um, but my point is, I understand what they're getting at. What they're getting at is that there is an element on the right that is 
extremely, there's a seed of potential here. And what I'm talking about is that what's happened on the left is that there was this appeal to compassion and empathy, right? It was like, hey, look at these, look at, um, you know, black Americans, look at black women, and look how hard it is for them to thrive and succeed in, in society. And we've got to bear some responsibility for that as a people group. And see, that message was actually very powerful because there was some truth in that, right? And that was very powerful. And many people were like, you know what? Yeah, we have to examine ourselves, right? We have to consider, right, what effects that we have had, right, in discriminating or just not being welcoming and loving, right, or not even thinking about people that were different from us. Very powerful message. And what happened is that message became weaponized, right? That became weaponized, that message of oppression, right? That these people are oppressed and you're the oppressor and all this kind of stuff. And that message became super weaponized and that resulted in this huge leftward push in the nation. And there's a very effective um, counter against that sentiment. And it's this, screw those people. <laughs> okay. And to be clear, this is not my position. Okay. But you have to understand this is a very powerful counter argument. Hey, you think you're oppressed? That's because you're a crybaby, right? That's because you're a whiner, okay? And hear me, I'm, I'm not making this argument. What I'm saying is that this argument is actually incredibly powerful because what it does is it disarms that argument for compassion and empathy. It completely disarms it, right? It says, hey, shouldn't you love these people? It was like, no, screw you, <laughs> right? That type of sentiment is actually extremely powerful. And there is a degree where Donald Trump has tapped into some of that because people accuse him of stuff. And what does he do? He immediately accuses them right back. He doesn't go, oh, you know what? You might be right. <laughs> because I said for a long time, this is actually how many Christians get confused on this issue is they get accused of doing evil and they, they start to receive it. And what it does is it saps them of their confidence. It saps them of their fight and they just back down. Right, and I've seen this happen many times. And Donald Trump has been particularly impervious to that because he doesn't. He's he's not gonna. You know, if you accuse Donald Trump, he's not gonna be like, "Oh shoot, maybe I shouldn't have said it like that." <laughs> right? That's like totally out of character for Donald Trump, which is one of the reasons why he's been such an effective leader. Right? Because he's not he he's not susceptible to that type of self criticism, right? And self judgment and all this kind of stuff that the left has been preying on. And and what I'm getting at is that there's a wide open door right now, okay, for leaders that carry an even greater degree of that type of sentiment. Okay. And look, that is one of Hitler's great strengths. Okay. One of Hitler's great strengths is he was constantly casting the blame on the enemies of the German people. Okay. And he was not, you know, he was not correctable. All right. He was not, you know, I, there was a reason why he was so compelling because in an environment where people are coming under underneath all this shame and right, that was the environment in Germany, right? They're, all the accusation of the nations around Germany after the end of World War One was you guys started this. World War One is your fault, right? You're to blame. And they put, and they, and they gave Germany all these reparations. They basically said, you need to pay for the entire war, right? And and the, there's this message of, of shame, of collective shame, and it's in that context that Hitler comes along and he says, this isn't our fault. 
right? We were betrayed, right? We are the noble German people. And what he did is he started to speak nobility and hope and strength and courage. He started to break off the shame of the German people. You have to understand that is an incredibly powerful rhetorical, you know, strategy. And it worked incredibly well so that the people trusted him, okay? And that's the danger that people are warning about with Trump on the left, they're saying, look, what Trump is doing is tapping in, you know, to these alt-right neo-Nazi white supremacists. And he's saying, you know, screw these people and we need to fight, right, for our national heritage. And they hear vestiges of Hitler's message in it. And they're not wholly wrong, okay? They're not wholly wrong. What they're doing is they're going way to an extreme. They're saying he's no better than Hitler. And you have to understand, this is such a, a crazy extreme lie, Okay. When, when Trump is likened to Hitler, that should immediately turn people off in the sense that Trump is Hitler, right? Because the idea that we can blame someone for crimes that he has not committed, right? Trump has not murdered six million Jews, right? He has not led our nation into war, even though he could have as president. He did not do those things. So when people accuse him of being Hitler, there's such a, a, a deep problem with that. I think it's a terrible, terrible type of slander and character assassination. But what they're getting at, okay, is this dynamic of what I'm talking about, okay? And because there is this danger that on the, on the conservative movement, we're going to embrace this callousness where we go, hey, look, all those people who are like, you know, giving in to this empathy and this compassion, that was a huge mistake. And our new message is going to be, screw those people. We're going to have zero empathy, zero compassion, right? And there's a danger because that message will actually be very compelling for many people because what it's going to do, it's going to set them free from that message of shame and condemnation that has been coming from the left. Right? They're going to feel this freedom. Like, I don't need to be ashamed for being white. Right, That being white is a great thing. That we have a, a proud heritage. Right, And the thing is, that's true. Right, It's true. We should be honoring white people in the same way that we honor Asian people and black people and Latino people. All peoples are worthy of great honor. And there has been this collective targeting of white people that has tried to cast you know, this incredible spirit of shame and condemnation on white America. And you have to understand what that is going to do. It's going to open them up to the, to, the, to the one who will come and say, you know what? Screw those people who say that, right? The white people have a proud heritage, right? That we've done so many amazing things and all of that's true. They're going to be speaking truth at that point. But the danger is that if there's this incredible callousness, it can push the right into an extreme place, right? Where they're devoid of compassion, where they're devoid of empathy. And that's also a very dangerous thing. And that's the problem when we have these wild swings to the far left. And now we're starting to swing back. And my warning is we have to be careful not to swing to the far right. Okay. And I understand that's why guys like Michael Brown are trying to head that thing off by saying, hey, we cannot have this allegiance to Trump above Christ. And I appreciate the heart of what I think he's trying to do. I probably would have said it a bit different than how he said it. But like I said, I understand the sentiment. I understand where he's coming from. And there really is a real danger in that direction. Okay, so that's the danger right now for most of us who are fighting for the kingdom. Most of our fight is against f attacks from the far left. 
Okay, most of the attacks because you know people on the far left they hate Christians like me, <laughs> all right. But what I am saying is, as we start to swing back more to the right, there there is a danger where we're going to have to warn against the extremes that can start to develop as the nation swings. We need we need a strong middle in the nation. We need a strong middle in the nation. Okay, because this is important that there is there are truths that the left champions that are important. Things like empathy and compassion and concern for those who are, you know, as Jordan Peterson puts it, at the bottom end of the hierarchy, right? If there's a hierarchy of competence in our in our society, which there are in, in all societies, well, you have a lot of people at the bottom and they feel disaffected and there needs, in politics, there needs to be those who champion their voice and that is important, right? And that has been the historical heart of the left, okay? And there's a need for the voice on the right, right? To say that competence is important, discipline is important, right? That we need responsibility. These types of things are important. So both of those messages are important. We need a strong middle in the nation and our warning is that we cannot be so susceptible to the winds of change that we allow ourselves to go to the extremes. And this has been the problem, and what I've been warning about over the course of this podcast has been that many Christian leaders have allowed themselves to fall into the extremes of the left in the past 10, 20 years. Okay? It's been become very dramatic, especially in the past couple years. Many of those leaders still don't understand that they're actually very far on the left. You know, for to them, you know, everybody sees themselves in the middle. <laughs> right for the most part, right? Everybody sees themselves in the middle. And, you know, ultimately, we're going to have to wait to heaven till we get to heaven to see who is actually in the right middle, okay? But what I am saying is that I think many leaders are actually pretty far out on the extreme left, and they don't realize it, how far, they don't realize how influenced by Marxism they've become, and that's really one of the things that I've tried to do is help under, help many Christians understand how it's really Marxist ideology that is undergirding much of this current, you know, um, popularity of diversity and inclusion all of this this is this is you know this is language that is being manipulated to support very far leftist ideology and a lot of christians just don't understand that they don't understand that you know when they talk about the need for diversity more diversity what they're actually doing is they're falling into the trap of the marxist left they're using the language when we use terms like social justice Right? A lot of Christians think that, oh, we're just talking about helping the poor, but that's not. We're not talking about the historic value, Christian value, biblical value of charity. All right, That's a healthy value that we should all have. But when we start to get into social justice, social justice is not a biblical term. It's a Marxist term. All right, And it, it, it signifies different things than the historical value of charity. And many Christians find themselves being drawn into a more Marxist understanding of the principle of charity than a biblical understanding. And that's what I've been talking about for several years now at this point. Okay. It's been a while since we've done politics, so I went a little bit long talking about all this kind of stuff, but I do hope it was helpful for you. God bless. Have an amazing week. Bye-bye.